crowdsourced interviews, straight up. Give, like, a, give a rose. It's to like the a Reddit that... AMA. Like you do the first 15 minutes of questions, and then like, okay, we're going to Reddit now, and then just the randomest random questions, like pickles are okay. You just yes interview no. people on the air and be like, we're gonna take callers now. <laughs> Oh my God, that'd be incredible. I kind of want to like run an outsourcing interview service now. That'd be amazing. Call who you're on the air. Yep. What would you like to ask? <laughs> what would you like to ask? He's interviewing for an HR associate position. <laughs> Jan, what has him from calling from Duluth? Jan? <laughs> I, I think we should, do, I think that's what I should do. I should just quit and start that service. New podcast. New podcast. New Job podcast. Interview Job interviews. Podcast. Also, you could you just could do it as practice. You could just you could have people that like want to practice for interviews and just be like, I'm gonna interview you. Yeah. Or just have a microphone that might be plugged in in every interview. <laughs> <laughs> and have like sign a little consent form oh, that's okay so to record mean. them. Oh, I'm having And they're awesome trying moment. to answer a yeah. question, you're like, I'm sorry, could you get a little could closer you get to the mic? Closer, yeah. <laughs> could you oh yeah, that didn't come through at yeah, all. Yeah, was actually, that? can you redo that? <laughs> This is Charles. And this is Rachel. From BNV Radio. This is Design Goggles. Architecture school is the stuff of legends. All nighters, demanding professors, and dropout rates are topics that come to mind. But somehow they overshadow what is, at its best, an inspirational experience. Up until recently, though, the education of an architect was a little outdated. Not too long ago, there were mostly male master architects moonlighting as professors criticizing student work a few times a week while students scrambled 23 hours a day to understand the architectural movement of the era. It was the Beaux-Arts back in the late 1800s, Bauhaus and modernism in the early 1900s, then postmodernism, deconstructionism, and minimalism following late into the 20th century. Lately, though, in the 21st, design movements have faded, giving way to values-driven design unlocked by constantly evolving digital technology that has been the catalyst for a sea change in architectural education. To chat about where the institution of design education is heading and what its role is in shaping the future, we are joined by Jeff Sandler, architect at Malum and professor of architecture at the University of Washington. Jeff, thank you for making time to sit and chat with us. Thanks for having me, Charles. Our pleasure. So every designer I know, every architect I know has crazy stories from school told over and over again, passed down. Now that you're teaching, having once been a student yourself, do you look back at your own time in school any differently? You know, there is an interesting thing that happens all the time when I'm teaching right now. And it's that I recollect on moments that I had when I was a student, especially an undergrad, you know, very new to higher ed, very new to architecture in general where I thought my professors were crazy. I thought they are trying to do this to me. They are trying to torture us. They want to do these things. And I have these recollections while I'm teaching right now at moments where I realize I don't necessarily know what my students do when I leave school. (laughs) (laughs) And this happens a lot. And, you know, when I connect those dots, what I realize is that my professors who I thought were concocting the most intricate forms of torture that they could were in fact going about the rest of their day 
and leaving me to my own devices. <laughs> that is one of the things I'll realize. Like, you'll just leave and you don't really think about it. And, you know, the next class students say, well, like, why did you tell us to do this before you left? It's like, well, it was the last thing on my mind. So <laughs> that was the last thing I said. And then I had to go home and live the rest of my life because <laughs> I, I don't live in studio. Yeah, I did this 20 years ago. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that is interesting, right? Like my first real peek behind the curtain is being the professor. But until that moment, I had all of this speculation and wonder about these magic oracles that were architecture <laughs> faculty. Were any of your suspicions confirmed? All of them. <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting because I think even in the way that you introduced academic architecture and the way we talk about the education of an architect, I think it's changed a lot. And, you know, I think I teach at a program that is not maybe bound by a lot of the conventions that a lot of us think about when we think about architecture school from 10, 20 plus years ago and sort of this old style of architecture school, this really top-down approach to architecture, this extremely male-dominated, albeit most faculties are still fairly well male-dominated. If you were breaking it down, what would be the percentage of that that is created by the students themselves and the percentage that the professors are trying to bring out and create this idea that they are this magic oracle that's going to yeah. come in and create their work? Is it equal or do you think... It's created maybe even not by all studio groups, but if there's somebody in the studio student that might be stoking that kind of relationship between student and professor. Well, I think in a lot of ways, that's exactly what I'm getting at in that being on this side of things now and understanding that my professors were not intentionally trying to <laughs> wreak havoc on my psyche or my colleagues' psyches in any way. I think the pedestal, at least in the context of the studio that I teach and at the program that I teach in, we are not putting ourselves on any kind of a pedestal and any pedestal that might be there is completely self-made by the students. Mm -hmm. They have this idea of who we are. And in a lot of ways, you know, I am not that far out of school and much closer to still being out of school than I would like to admit to most of the students who I teach. And if anything, I am more of a relatable peer and I'm only afraid that I'll be found out. <laughs> there is something that occurs to me that maybe hasn't changed, but I want to hear your opinion on it, is that Part of architectural education that is different from most other education at university is that your job isn't necessarily you don't just go in and this is the last thing I had on my mind. So this is what you're going to do today. But you're trying to think of something that's going to be able to poke loose something in their head that they can't access yet. Is that still the approach? Or is there a dogmatic process you're going through from the beginning to the end? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that is a really poignant question when it comes to architectural education and current architectural education, mostly because the way that architects are taught now and the society that we live in is allowing for, you know, various approaches. It's allowing for individuality and for people to generate their own ideas. And so I've joked about this term, but I teach in a program and I am particularly anti-dogmatic. And what I mean by that is there is not a specific approach that we are strong arming our students into. I teach a very introductory level design studio in the architecture sequence in the undergraduate program. And I've spent a lot of time considering what is the point of the class that I teach? And over the past three years that I've been teaching this same studio, what I've come to realize is the importance of the class that I teach is to get students outside of their preconceived ideas about architecture and the built environment. For instance, if I were to ask my students to draw me a bathroom, every one of them would draw the bathroom that they grew up showering in. 
every single one of them without mm-hmm. fail. And so it becomes our role as their instructors to craft language, to ask questions, and to probe them to do things that are truly novel and to get them to think and not just recreate experiences that they've already had, but to truly create original experiences. So of the three of us in this room, we all went to architecture school, right? But I'm the Mm -hmm. only one of the three of us that took that degree and then left the profession, right? So I'm wondering... Because now, you know, I'm not in academia anymore, but I hear that there is this push to take some version of the architectural education and teach it to people who are not on a design track. And so I'm really intrigued by this because that degree enables me to do everything that I do in my job every day. I could do my job as well without it. It teaches you to think in a different way and to look at the world in a different way. Do you envision that there is, or is this already happening at the UW or other places that you heard about where there actually are dedicated programs? You're teaching undergrads, maybe undergrads that are in business or any number of other majors. You know, Mm -hmm. like, is there an architecture studio for non-architects? So there are a few answers to that question. The first is that the University of Washington started, I think it was two years ago. There is a parallel undergrad major in architecture that is a non-design based architecture degree. It can be theory and it can be technical. And the rationalization behind it is there are a lot of people in the profession who do not spend their days crumpling up balls of trace paper Mm -hmm. and sketching it and handing it off to an intern to develop into their masterwork. There are a lot of people in architecture who may never design at all, but are there in very important roles to make sure that the building delivery process actually happens. A lot of these people might continue on to become architectural historians or other types of scholars, or they might work in the architecture, engineering, construction, sort of the building industry, but not be what we all think of as like the traditional architect, whether that's, I was going to say, Tom Brady. (laughs) Tom Brady. What's what's Brady's first name? Mr. Brady. Who are you talking about? The Brady Bunch Brady's. Oh, I was thinking of Tom Brady, the quarterback. No, I know. That's why I said, (laughs) because I was going to say like, you know, Mr. Brady, but then I was like, Tom Brady. Oh, what was the Brady Bunch Brady? first name. I don't, I don't know. Steve? I don't know. Steve. He looks like a Steve. Wow, yeah, for sure. Shmuel. It just doesn't really yeah. roll off the tongue very well, <laughs> if though. If you know, call in at 555. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Brady Architects. <laughs> but so you're still talking about people that are going into the profession in some other area, and I'm wondering about people that are going into completely other realms of occupations that could still benefit from the things that you learn in school. Yes. So there are a lot of people who are very interested in architecture as a field. At a lot of universities, I think right now, there are sort of an appreciation of architecture or an architectural history class that is more of a survey where students can learn about various histories of architecture, various schools of design and various types of architecture so that when they're visiting family on the East Coast or when they're traveling through India or when they go on vacation to Sao Paulo, you know, they can pick out buildings and they can discern things that they might not otherwise think about or really see. So there are a lot of classes like that, but I think the cornerstone of an architect's education is really the design studio. Mm -hmm. And there is a certain rigor that comes with it, and there is a certain time commitment that nearly makes it mutually exclusive from studying most other things. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, I think there are ways that a lot of students on a college campus are becoming interested in learning about architecture, but I think the real cornerstone of it is the design studio, Mm -hmm. which is a very time-consuming an intensive process. Yeah. Something you mentioned earlier about everyone giving the bathroom assignment, everybody coming back and giving the bathroom that they grew up in. Is there a portion of the education that is breaking down 
all of those connections that we all grow up with. Like a math major doesn't have to, in the first math 101 class they take, one plus one does not equal three isn't a thing that comes up on day one, but professors are coming in and saying that's not a bathroom. You need to stop drawing that when I say bathroom. Yeah, I think there are different ways of arriving at that. And I can speak most to the way that I and colleagues of mine who I teach with have sort of formulated to work with our students to break down those preconceived ideas or notions. And the way that I try to do that is writing assignments or crafting design briefs, as we sometimes call them that are fairly devoid of things that the students are familiar with. In the end is the prompt for a design studio about designing a visitor center in a park in the city of Seattle. But are we going to call it that? Absolutely not. It's a space for contemplation. It, it is a, I cannot tell you how many discussions I've had whether to call something a retreat or a refuge. Mm -hmm. Classic architecture studio. Absolutely. And I think part of that is my own bias that I use language and text a lot in my own design process. And I think it's really important to prime our own creativity and talk about our own ideas by using specific language. And so I try to break those things down like you were talking in math for architects by not using words that students might be more familiar with or might expect to see. Makes sense. Big one now. What do you think is the biggest problem with architectural education? That's a phenomenal question. <laughs> I don't know. Can I lead a little, like lead the question sure. a little bit? Because I don't know if it's the right answer, but I definitely did not do a whole lot of sleeping in architecture school and was adamant about the fact that it was necessary to yeah. not just keep going. And besides being stubborn about it, it was just so easy to get going on a roll and, oh. and just like, you know, you just lose track of time mm -hmm. and everybody else is losing track of time with you. So it's not like you're by yourself. And then, of course, there's all these studies out there showing how sleep deprivation is dramatically detrimental yeah. to your ability to be creative. Mm -hmm. But it really felt like back then that a lot of that was, you know, not at all caused by the professors at all. They were trying to teach us to be healthier with our habits, but it's just so easy mm -hmm. to fall into that trap. And then I wonder if people are kind of training their their own personal mindset of in order to solve this problem, I must stay up all night to work on this and that they're bringing it with them beyond school. I think that data is a little misleading yeah. because, and this is just my perspective, what makes architectural education special and what we really get out of it has much more to do with the other students and the people that we spend time with. Mm -hmm. Regardless of whether or not that time is sketching or making something, mm -hmm. we're learning about the world from 40 different perspectives. Spending all that time yeah. is also bonding and understanding other creative people and what influences them. Sure. So maybe your sketch comes a month later, the one that breaks open your project. And maybe it was unlocked by some random thing that happened at 4 a.m. You kept mentioning time. And so now I'm thinking maybe that's the challenge. And that's one of those things that we face in the profession, too, is that design takes time. And so in school, you're trying to compress a process that, you know, might take a whole lot longer into a much shorter little piece. And then we have the same struggles after you leave school in the profession that, you know, you're on a timeline, you're on a budget, you can't spend all the time in the world to come up with the perfect design because you're going to run out of your budget or you're going to miss the deadline or all that stuff. Time is one of those little nuggets of what inhibits some of us maybe. Because I mean, sometimes you have the great idea right away and then you question it because you're thinking, oh, I should spend more time thinking about this. And maybe you came across something brilliant right at the beginning and you won't accept it for what it is because you think you need to spend more time on it. Right. You know, in some ways, I think it's a difficult question to answer because 
architecture in a lot of ways is like a lot of other types of education. And I think we on the podcast today have all been through it. And so like anyone else who's been through it thinks that it's in some way very unique and special. But in a lot of ways, you know, an architect's education parallels both going to art school, getting a liberal arts degree and going to technical college. The difference being is that it's all three of those and it's all three of those at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think it has some of the same pitfalls as any other degree or type of education. And I'm constantly reminded of the squeaky little kid's voice from the back of the classroom asking in elementary school, when am I ever going to use this? <laughs> and what's uncanny to me in balancing both an academic career and a professional career where I go to an office and sit at a desk and make buildings and call engineers on the phone. In addition to going to the studio with my students and supporting their dreams and talking about all of these really esoteric ideas, is that things that I felt were so removed from the practice of architecture when I was in school, now that I straddle that divide, are so relevant. We often like to think that developing a strong conceptual underpinning is at the opposite end of the spectrum from nuts and bolts, designing a project and making something a reality. But what I find more and more is that nurturing and developing a story alongside a project is really just the way to get buy-in from other stakeholders on a job. Mm. And so the conceptual underpinnings of an architectural education could be, in short, read as how to sell your work. It is how to come up with the argument why someone should do what you are suggesting for them to do. And in a lot of ways, our profession requires an immense amount of both buy-in and trust from our clients because buildings cost a lot of money. On the other side of the coin, that's certainly valid. How much does personal validation play a role in student work? I mean, you could take that even further and continue to play a role in our profession. Does it start in school? Yeah. I mean, you know, without getting too into my own psyche, I think, <laughs> I think that personal validation can be extremely important depending on who you are, but is at least a little important to any human being alive um, <laughs> at any point in history. So I think in another way, some kind of validation or the understanding that we all need validation or we seek some amount of validation, especially when we are producing something that is so personal as creative work. It's worth noting and it's worth understanding. For instance, when I was in school, one of the first things that I learned from a very influential teaching assistant who I could relate to was don't say me and mine when you talk about your work. Say the design, the proposal. Hmm. And she said to me, it'll be easier to take feedback about the project. Interesting. It won't feel so personal and it won't feel as though your critics are attacking you. That's good advice. Yeah, it's true. Because often when you're doing creative work, whether people admit it or not, it's extremely personal. It can be very intimate and private. And it's worth noting that if you are going to have a sustainable, successful career producing creative work, it's going to be challenged. And to be able to get up every day and do it and do it to the best of your ability, you need to be able to sort of distance yourself from it. Well, it's like you have to step back enough in order to be your own critic. 
It's yes. really hard to be your own critic in a way that is, okay, let me Objective. rephrase. It's very easy to be your own critic. I'm super great at criticizing <laughs> myself, <laughs> but it's hard to Rachel, criticize myself <laughs> in a constructive way if I don't step back a little bit further from it. Yeah. Right. right. Back when I was in school, they did a much less sensitive way of creating some distance between you and your work. They would just right. there was a, a lot big, more crying marker. Yeah. We Smash drew that model by hand and they would just draw on it with a marker. And then some students would get clever and cover their sheets with trace and they would move the trace mm -hmm. and then draw on the, the drawing. <laughs> but at least afterwards, when people were like losing their minds and contemplating ending everything, they would say that the reason they do that is that so it's no longer precious to you. Right. right. You never feel like you're done and that you nailed it and it's perfect. And that makes all a ton of sense. But right. when you are in school and you old, don't have a yeah. ton of money and that mm -hmm. poster cost $50 to print, yep. you know, you're just like... <laughs> is I that mean, still productive? Not that behavior, but the idea of pulling people away from the preciousness of what they've done. Oh, yeah. I think it's completely productive. Regardless of your bent on how architects or other creatives should be educated, I think it's one of the more productive things that you can do is to teach students or budding creatives to be able to distance themselves from their work. In some cases, so that they are more able to withstand the feedback, good or bad, <laughs> that they are receiving. And in other ways, so that they can step back and objectively evaluate their work for themselves. Mm -hmm. Which, very close second after convincing my students to ditch their preconceived notions that they come into my introductory studio with, is teaching them how to self-evaluate. Mm -hmm. I'm amused because it's like, I don't know, it crossed my mind. Like, what if you did this to... Your Not parents. in a mean way, but like a small child, <laughs> you know, like, like if you have a kid, it draws you a picture. Yeah. Dad, congratulations on the new car. I smashed all the windows so yeah. you wouldn't find it too didn't precious. didn't want you to feel, yeah. Yeah, yeah the you line know, like weight sucked. <laughs> How do you, you know, teach a kid, you know, like you wouldn't, your right. child draws you a picture and you're like, well, that's nice, Billy, but. <laughs> Those ears are know. way too big. No human has ears that big. I'm going to destroy it rather than <laughs> yeah. put it on the fridge because I want you to not be too connected to your work. <laughs> You, I could so see some of my professors doing that to children. <laughs> yeah. their own really kids. And, and I bet they do. I bet they have, and, yeah. and their children are extremely <laughs> yes. messed up. Yes. No, but it's actually, it's important that you bring this up. It's often something that I think about in this weird balance that I have now of teaching and working and practicing and, you know, still being a young practitioner and remembering school like it was yesterday, because in some senses it kind of was. It has that lasting emotional impact. Well, it and it does. <laughs> yep. But also because there is a certain level of maturity that is required or a certain level of perspective that one needs to really be able to benefit from this type of education. Mm -hmm. I think it would be supremely difficult to take you know, a preteen and give them the same type of education and the same type of criticism that we often give architecture students. I often think that being fresh out of high school and going to architecture school, which is what I did, is not always the most beneficial for people. In fact, when I look back at my time as a student, I was most interested in people who had a non-traditional path or a circuitous, non-direct route to architecture school. You know, the kid that joined the army and went to school in their 30s. The kid that got an associate's degree and then worked with their parents surveying land and drawing topographical maps before they started architecture school. Because when they got there, they had the work ethic and they were determined because of a certain level of maturity that they were able to get a lot out of something that at the time, if I'm really honest with myself, I might not have gotten all that much out of. 
when I look back at it now, I can look at it through a lens and get a lot out of it. But at the time, I wanted to throw Frisbee on the quad because I was 18 and mm-hmm. I was at state school. Yep. I agree with you completely. I mean, you're starting to see it somewhat where there are fewer professional level architecture degrees that are the five-year undergrad thing. And I think I haven't kept up. I don't know where that's really going or how that's evolving. But it seems to me that you can be more of a, for lack of a better word, the renaissance path towards becoming an architect. It just feels like you become a better designer if you're exposed to more things and don't have tunnel vision only on the architecture profession from the beginning of your undergraduate education. And I think, you know, some of that is by nature in our society. You know, people talk about how we used to grow up a lot faster, Mm -hmm. right? When you were 20 years old, you know, 30, 40 years ago. We used to specialize too soon. Yeah. And that might be true as well. And so I think prolonging adulthood maybe is leading towards a more illuminated adulthood. It just, mm-hmm. you know, happens 15 years later. Sure. To be devil's advocate, you said the what we call four plus two instead of the five-year professional degree, a four-year degree and then go into graduate school. Does it create better designers or different designers than the five-year? Because I think, and we talked about this on previous episodes, where there is a place for high-minded inspirational design that doesn't necessarily serve society in a traditional way. It inspires, and then design rises to the inspiration. Sometimes the ivory tower approach could be relevant if that's a direction someone wants See, to go. See, I feel like I would most naturally argue the side of that argument of you don't make a better designer if you have tunnel vision and have never looked at the bigger picture or the world around you, mm-hmm. that you can't design in a vacuum. Well, I don't think having a five-year degree necessarily means you've never looked at the no, world. No, but I mean, you haven't <laughs> yeah, studied Fill out thing. this form. Yeah. Have you ever looked at the world before? <laughs> Me, denied. You know what I mean, though. Your five-year degree is looming large. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm genuinely curious about it because I think there is validity to what you're saying. I just, I'm wondering literally, mm-hmm. how does it create different architects and what are the pros and cons of both? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think wrong. it's specific yeah. to architecture either. I think I could even maybe take it past just creative professions, but that mm-hmm. all sorts of different professions benefit from having exposure to different ways of thinking and different ways that we approach problems in different fields. Mm-hmm. And that not just architecture, not just engineering, mm-hmm. not just, I don't know, being a doctor, being a lawyer, that if you are exposed to more things, you might be able to take or glean some things from the other typical academic ways of studying and looking at problems that will, in the end, make you better at what you are doing once you do focus in. Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of the rub of this right now is that in the best sense, education should mirror society. It sometimes responds to society, but often I would hope that it is a springboard projecting forward with how we think and the ways that we interact and the things that we do. And I think a lot of this discussion is sort of coming from an understanding that we are becoming a much more interdisciplinary, collaborative society. Mm -hmm. And you see that reflected in architecture school. It used to be you would show up at an architecture school, whether you're 17, 18, fresh out of school, or you're 35. And you would slog through five years doing all of your own design problems by yourself, either cowering from your classmates and hiding your work from them or beating them over the head with your prowess in the studio. And then you would graduate and you would go on and 
you know, wear a cape and your clients would hate you. And this, <laughs> um, What are you but, saying about my cape that yeah. I'm wearing right now? I like your cape, Charles. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but it used to be that a lot of endeavors, including architecture, were much more individualized. And I think now, whether you think of how litigious our society is or you just think of the complexity with which we understand the world because of scientific advancements, thought exercises, legalization of marijuana, you know, whatever you want to call it, we rely on teams of people. We rely on whole groups of people, buildings full of people to build one building. Right. right. Yeah. That myth of like the master architect right. looming over his minions building, that doesn't really happen even right. in the capital A firms anymore. Right. And, and yeah. that's why it's important for architects to be able to speak like a normal person. Uh -huh. And I think it's important for architects to be relatable because at the end of the day, we work in a service industry and we serve our clients who hire us to design projects for them. Mm -hmm. And so it is becoming increasingly more important for architects to be relatable, mm -hmm. which you could debate from here to eternity and never have an answer of does that make better architects? Because the one question that I fear you asking me and will not answer is <laughs> what is good architecture? <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm not asking that. We'll do like a five-part mini-series on what's good architecture. Yeah. That's like, whoa. But I do want to switch gears and talk about faculty. We spent most of the time talking about the students and the student experience. Something that really interests me about the architectural education specifically is that some of the perception is that somewhat esoteric, abstract process that's so different from a lot of other academia. But what is more common in other schools of almost any other discipline is how many professors are academics. They graduate school, they get a graduate degree, maybe a PhD, and then continue on in academia. And some go and practice for years and then come back and teach, but that's the minority. In architecture, like you, most professors, it seems to be, are either have spent a majority of their career as professionals or are literally still professionals while they teach. Is that a positive or a negative? I will be the first to say that I think it is important to champion diversity in every sense of the word. And so I think in the role of educating young architects, it is important for students to have experienced both faculty members who live in the academy and never leave their realm. Yeah. And it's important for them to experience faculty more like me or even farther on the spectrum than me who are truly practitioners of architecture, mm -hmm. who are designing, building, and interacting within the profession the way that it is set up and having the experience of being taught by both of those people because mm. you learn different things. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the ratio should be more equal? You know, I think that there is a whole discussion about the agency of young people choosing or finding their correct path and mm -hmm. figuring out where to go to school. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that you need to have a more equal faculty of practitioners and theologians. Mm -hmm. I think what you need to have is uh, digestible marketing for architecture programs so that students have an idea of what they're getting into. Mm -hmm. There aren't a lot of kids who go to the Southern California Institute of Architecture who think that they are going to learn how to draw stair details. <laughs> right. For those of you who don't know, the Psy Arc as it's called, is an avant-garde program that is, they have even called themselves not actually conceptual. They are making interesting things. They're finding ways of working, but it is not classical academics. It is not theoretical architecture. It is newness mm -hmm. and is thinking what architecture might, should, and will be in a hundred years from now. Whereas you have students who go to maybe a drafting school program 
And that's a completely different thing. It's important for the students who want one experience or the other to know where they're going and get the education that they want. And aren't these things split apart in Europe a little bit more? Yeah. So it depends a little bit on the country. And I think, you know, our profession is varied in different countries depending on the way that different societies work, the different ways that people value certain things. For instance, I spent a chunk of my academic career when I was in graduate school in Copenhagen going to the Royal Academy. And in Denmark, there are two types of architects. There are two tracks for becoming an architect. There are construction architects and there are design architects. And the role of a design architect is to be truly novel, to be truly innovative and creative. And that's not to say that construction architects are not, but the construction architects are more tasked with coming up with the technical solutions to execute those ideas that perhaps their design architect colleagues came up with. But you choose one type of education and one type of practice or the other. That seems so much less political. It seems like you hear a lot of drama in architecture firms of conflict between those two roles. And I feel like I'm just guessing here, but if you had decided that that's what you wanted to do as your career and studied specifically for that, that that would eliminate a lot of that conflict and you could work together more without it being like, well, somebody swooped in and told me that I can't do this because it doesn't fit their party Mm -hmm. or whatever. It just seems like it would remove drama, but maybe that's wishful thinking. It's interesting. I wonder how much, like, it's so specific to America that I need to be the best and number one. I have to do all of the things and be the smartest. Yeah. Yes, all the things. In Europe, there's, like, famously more job satisfaction because people are okay with, like, my career is this. Mm -hmm. It is not an aspirational career. It's just my job. In a lot of other places, in a lot of other cultures, there is a much stronger sense of a greater good, Mm -hmm. a, a collective whole. Whereas historically in the United States, we are cowboys, we are lone wolves, we are Frank Lloyd Wrights in the architecture sense of things. And so there is or has been or continues to be this ideal of someone who can go it alone, figure everything out, who can be the creative genius and the technical expert. And the reality is that it's nearly impossible at almost any scale that you work at. Do you get students come in and be like, well, I want to be like Bjarke Ingels, so I did this? Or do people come in, they have their celebrity architect, and they do things to match that or mimic it? Or is that a thing? Oh, yeah, that's completely a thing. I remember second year, University of Illinois, surrounded by hundreds of miles of corn in every direction. (laughs) I still think fondly of it, though. When I would be challenged in studio, staying up late at night, the image that everyone knows about architecture school, I would watch interviews of Santiago Calatrava. (laughs) I just thought he was incredible. I thought he was the best architect. I wanted to do things like him. (laughs) I wanted to emulate him. And it was a phase. (laughs) And, And it ended. And then I found another architect who I wanted to emulate. And then I found another architect who I wanted to emulate. But at the end of the day, it's not all that different from something that we ask our students to do, which is a precedent study. You know, there is a long history or precedent in architecture school of requiring students to study, analyze, and then recreate work in the style of different architects. And there are a lot of important reasons for doing that, one of which is just understanding the process that architects have. We have a profession that is so process-oriented and so reliant on figuring out your own process for working that it's really nice to kind of try these other architects on for a little bit and see where does it work, where does it not work, where does it fall short, what do you as an individual really um, glum on to, what are you interested in to find your own way. 
I think in the same way that a mathematician might go to school and study great historical figures in mathematics and their ways of thinking and their understandings of the world, only to find their own way of doing things later on in their career. Well said. So it seems like, you know, it's pretty obvious what you as a practicing architect bring to the academic world of architecture. What about the other side of that? What does teaching the next generation of architects allow you to bring back to your client-driven work? Yeah, it's funny. I often, you know, sort of not joke with friends and other people who I talk to about my experience teaching in addition to my professional work is that I think I learn more and get more every time that I teach than most, if not all, of my students. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I say I feel a little bad about that, but I, you know, (laughs) I, I work hard to do that. And it's interesting. There is a real richness. There is a real romance. There's a real excitement that comes from new, young, budding students. If for no other reason than to see them do things that the rest of us have heard not to do anymore. In your opinion, based on your experience after teaching studio for a couple of years, what is the biggest roadblock that students encounter in getting better? Oof. <laughs> That's a good question. It really varies. And I think part of that is because the education of architecture students is so individualized. It's kind of like a choose your own adventure book for people listening who still remember (laughs) choose your own adventure books. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the biggest challenge might be a technical challenge that you as a student really grapple with knowing how to represent your ideas and communicate them graphically, whether it's on the computer, whether it's sketching by hand, whether it's building models, whether it's 3D printing, you know, whether it's doing all kinds of new technology to do that new styles representation. For other students, it might be idea generation, just coming up with novel and interesting things to explore. And so it really varies for any student. But I think the commonality in architecture school that is the challenge for everyone, regardless of how talented we all might begin or not begin, is really becoming comfortable with not knowing and dealing with a certain level of ambiguity. That's pretty good. I keep ending my answers with like, and it's done. (laughs) This is the answer. No more discussion. (laughs) So let's say someone came with you with a massive endowment and said, I want you to open the Jeff Sandler School of Architecture. (laughs) (laughs) Sandler Arc. Sandark. Sandark. The sand people from Star Wars will work there. Yeah, Yeah. it'll be awesome. How would you structure things? It can be the same, different. How would you structure an architectural education? You know, it's so hard to think about because I often like to think in my head that my favorite version of most scholarly type endeavors is some version of the Dead Poet Society, (laughs) where you have a small band of people who are maybe like-minded, maybe aren't, but come together around a single cause, issue, or interest that they have and are truly passionate and can rally around that and want to spend late nights in a cave reading about it by firelight. But I don't know how you make that as a school. So Taliesin. <laughs> you know, it, I mean, that, that sounds yeah. about like Taliesin. Yeah. yeah, but I think that falls into a lot of the issues that we have in architecture school of, is that really responsible? Like, is that a way to teach architects? Is that reaching people who could be truly incredible architects or who truly desire to be architects who maybe don't come from a place where they would thrive in that environment Mm -hmm. or that they would be able to find their way to that environment? And so I grapple with that, that there is this intimate romantic setting that is very, in a lot of ways, exclusive. I mean, you have to remember Dead Poets Society is at a prep school. 
And so there are issues of class and equity and all these things that go along with how I would ever structure an architecture school that I need to spend an entire lifetime thinking about. Would that be the only thing, though? Because there's value in that, right? But also you're struggling with it because besides diversity and inclusion, there are other things that are in your past that you remember of being very informative and helpful in the evolution of your career and your way of thinking. And it's not why we have semesters so that you flip and have a different structure, a different way of thinking. But is there a way, I don't know, much like going on and studying abroad or something that you could have a structure of education that isn't necessarily doesn't have to geographically relocate, but could have these completely different ways of looking at that education. And you have the Dead Poets Society version, and then you have one that is a high-tech technical studio, 3D printing and all that. And, you know, sure. and uh, just switch yeah, gears. I, and, I think what we're getting at is that there is a certain amount of depth and intensity that there would be like in any of these instances, whether it's a Dead Poets Society, whether it's a William Gibson book, kind of like what you're describing whether it's, you know, another literary reference, like the Lord of the Flies, where you take everyone to the jungle and they all build canoes, you know, I don't, I don't know, there, there's value to be learned in that. But the commonality between all of those things is there a deep dive, there is a true depth of thought, there is a true intensity to the experience of being there. It reminds me of programs like the Brian McKay Lions in Nova Scotia used to run this ghost laboratory on the Atlantic coast in Nova Scotia. He would go on this outcrop of granite boulders on his property that, you know, has been in his family. And he would take young architects and they would spend two weeks designing these incredible semi-permanent pieces of architecture. And after those two weeks, people would come back from this quasi-religious architectural experience that would regularly kind of shape the rest of their career. And I think that there is a lot of merit that you see in things like that because it is truly impactful on someone's education. That's fantastic. Thanks for coming. Is that it? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we've been talking it. for about an hour. Okay. Cool. <laughs> That's usually my last question is like, the, what would you do if you had control of the world? Yep. And now you're president. And now you're the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Check out Design Goggles podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also check out our blog on boredandvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by Board and Vellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks. Bye.